I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. This is Gardening with the RHS, and I'm Fiona Davison. I don't know about you, but in my garden, I'm noticing things are coming up at strange times of years. I've got bulbs already breaking through the ground that years ago I wouldn't have expected to see until January. And I'm not alone. Taking a wider view, since 1906, the global average surface temperature has increased by almost one degree Celsius, and rain and snowfall have increased across the globe on average. Yet some areas are experiencing more severe droughts, increasing the risk of wildfires, lost crops and shortages of drinking water. And this is what we're going to discuss today. How our climate is changing and what it means for us gardeners and how it will affect wildlife too. Plus we're investigating what we can do to protect our green spaces in the future. Let's start with Peter Gibbs. He's a meteorologist and is here to tell us what climate change means for growers. So over the course of my lifetime, and I was born in the late 50s, the average temperature in the UK has increased by around about one degree Celsius. Now that really doesn't sound like very much, does it? Just one degree. Let's put that in a different context. Over that same period, the growing season in the UK has actually increased by a whole month. So over my lifetime, there's now a whole extra month of growing season just due to that one degree rise in average temperature. And I think that shows how what seem like fairly small changes in background climate actually have a really big impact on gardening and the natural world. And we see that as gardeners in things like frost, for example, we're seeing around about 20% fewer frosts than we actually saw, again, sort of 40, 50, 60 years ago. Interesting, though, the distribution of those frosts has changed. So we're seeing a lot less at this time of the year. So in the autumn, early part of the winter, November and December, frost is becoming quite a rarity across many parts of the UK. But we're still seeing just about as many frosts in the springtime. So at the time when probably... As a gardener, you're really worried about frost doing some damage to uh, tender plants. And actually, with a warmer climate and plants coming into growth that bit earlier, it sounds a bit perverse, but actually still having a frost at that time of the year could cause more damage than it did when the climate was actually cooler a few decades ago. 
Rainfall is another interesting one. It's difficult because of the variability anyway in the UK weather from year to year. It's hard to pick out an overall trend in rainfall. There is a suggestion that uh, winter rainfall in Scotland has increased over the last few decades. But overall, it's hard to pick out a signal from the noise, if you like. What we are picking up, though, is that when it does rain, it tends to rain heavier. So we're getting a similar amount, but it's coming down in bigger dollops. And that has implications for things like uh, flooding, both during the winter, but also potentially flash flooding during the summer. If you get a sudden downpour, particularly onto fairly dry ground. I think it's interesting that gardeners are very much tuned in to climate change. We're out there, we're in the elements, we do see the changes, particularly if you've been gardening for a long time. You do see that you're growing things in a different way, perhaps, to what you might have done 20, 30 years ago. We're getting away with things more through the winter. These milder winters mean that what might have been regarded as an exotic plant to grow in the UK several years ago, now most winters will actually get away with it. Things like dahlias, for example, I regularly now just leave my dahlias in the ground, whereas 20, 30 years ago, I would have actually taken them out for the winter because there was a risk of them being affected by hard frost. I think one of the things we're really going to have to think hard about dealing with is water management. We're going to get warmer, wetter winters. That seems to be the prediction going ahead. We're seeing that happening already. The last few years is a good example of exactly that. So excess rainfall in the winter... But then going into an increased risk of drought with high temperatures during the summer. So maybe we have to think about catching some of that winter rainfall to then reuse in the summer. We're also going to have to think about what we actually grow. The increased temperatures, in particular the milder winters, could potentially have quite an impact on some really common plants that we grow. Things like apple trees, for example, do need a good chilling period during the winter to store up their energy ready for that bud burst in the spring to produce good blossom and good fruit. Now, if they're not getting that chilling period, there is a chance they could actually reduce the yield as a result. Adding to that, the effect of early blossom being affected by a late frost, and that risk is increasing. Many of the familiar plants we have in our herbaceous borders that we leave in there year-round, they go dormant during the winter, they burst forth again in the spring. Again, they rely on that chilling period during the winter to really gather their energy reserves ready for that spurt of growth in the spring. So as things warm up, they don't get that chilling period. Then they start to get a bit confused, if you like, and they don't perform as well. So we are going to have to think hard about what we're growing in the future. I think gardeners have got a really important role to play here. We're all in touch with the environment. We're all in touch with the weather, with the climate. We see the changes going on. And I think we all want to do something about that. We want to do our part because we see the potential damage that's being done to the environment through our gardens. And there is a lot we can do. Green space, for a start, is a great way to mitigate higher temperatures, particularly in urban areas. Things like using peat-free compost, this is a, a really big one. There's been a lot about this recently in the news. We've heard Monty Don talking about it, of course, as being really a big issue that horticulture needs to get hold of. And we can drive that as gardeners by uh, insisting on peat-free compost. And also things like plastic use. 
how many plastic pots have I got in my potting shed? And I'm sure everybody else is exactly the same, but at least I'm reusing them. Again, consumer power, I think, is a very strong driver of these things. We can all play our part, and I think all gardeners want to play that part. Peter Gibbs. It's not just our plant life that's being impacted by all of this, but our native wildlife is under threat too. The Living Planet Report is a leading study into wildlife by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, otherwise known as the WWF. It shows that our planet's wildlife populations have plummeted by 68% since 1970. We spoke to their head of climate change, Gareth Redmond King. Wildlife worldwide is affected by the climate crisis and we are seeing one in six species at risk of extinction globally. We've seen dramatic falls in wildlife populations globally over the last 40 years, about two-thirds, slightly more than that actually now. And, you know, the UK is no exception. The UK is actually one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world and about one in seven uh, species in the UK is actually at risk of extinction. Not all as a result of climate, but, you know, many of the other threats to wildlife interact with climate change as well. So, I mean, puffins, for example, really, really beautiful little birds who come and, you know, nest at various places around the UK's coast each year. They nest here so that they can breed. They rely on being able to feed their chicks with sand eels and other small fish. As waters warm, those sand eels will move further away looking for cooler waters so puffins have to fly further to get food to feed their young so it becomes harder so in effect it becomes harder to breed we add to that problem by overfishing and we just make it harder and harder and so we see the numbers fall and we see that with kittiwakes as well another beautiful little seabird that's very familiar around the coast and anywhere you are in the UK you will see bees bees are another example of a species affected by changes in our climate Not necessarily so much honeybees, you know, who've been threatened by other things, colony collapse disorder, for example, but we have over 250 species of bees here in the UK. And they come out at different times of the year, ready to to feed and to breed. And and as we as they lose habitat, as we stop having so much wildflower meadow and hedgerows, and as the seasons change, you know, they may find that they're coming out at the wrong time and the food isn't there for them. One of the big things I would say to any gardener, going back to the bees point, is just provide food for bees, provide habitat for them, you know. There are lots of different sorts of gardeners. You know, some people like a bit of wilderness, some people like really sort of manicured gardens. But I'd say to, to everyone, try and have a little bit of wilderness, a little bit of wildness around the edges of your garden, you know. Have somewhere where it just grows wild, where there are nettles, which are amazing for butterflies to be able to lay their eggs on. Wild flowers as well just you know to to enable the bees to thrive so but anything anything else that gardeners can do just to make space for wildlife you know bird feeders you know leaving little piles of leaf litter and piles of logs and twigs you know a little bit of mess in a corner somewhere really really helpful for for things like hedgehogs which are really suffering as we kind of break up their habitat into really really kind of rigidly fenced off gardens they find it more difficult to move around you know but also insects that kind of breed in that sort of leaf litter and, and log mess um, you might not like the insects themselves, but birds like them uh, and hedgehogs like them and other little mammals like them. And they're really important for them to feed on. 
Yeah, I mean, inevitably, there are always going to be species that kind of do a little bit better when um, when the climate changes. But that's not always a good thing. But as the climate warms here in the UK, we're seeing things like cow ticks or box tree moths. You know, these these are new species that are thriving and doing well in the UK. And we might go, hurrah, new species. But... You know, the box tree moth uh, is not so great news for box trees. The cow tick, obviously, is is a tick, so it, it sort of feeds off animals, cows, but also dogs and hedgehogs, horses, foxes. So sometimes those species that do better, it's not such good news. There are other species that do better, which is lovely news. You know, the little egret and the European bee-eater, lovely bird species that, are, you know, it's nice to see in the UK. But we've just got to remember that, you know, if they're thriving because the, the temperature is warm, there are other more birds that are not thriving, and um, particularly seabirds, because of that change. Well, our aims for the future in terms of protecting wildlife and, and tackling the climate crisis relate to, to what we need to do to protect and restore nature. Nature is a, a huge ally in tackling the climate crisis, those natural systems that lock up carbon for us. But it's also really, really important for creating the habitat to support those the, the wildlife that, that are struggling. So what we're really focused on is legislation and the means of enforcing it that the government needs to pursue around nature recovery networks. So protecting and restoring those critical ecosystems. We need to be planting somewhere between 30 and 50,000 hectares a year of new good quality woodlands. We need to protect about 200,000 hectares of priority habitat, peatlands, wetlands, hedgerows, coastal habitats, all of which, again, great for wildlife and, frankly, also for people as well. So one of the most important things we're going to need to keep an eye on in in the next few years as the UK negotiates new trade agreements with with other countries is is just to make sure that we are not undermining those standards and regulations of, of nature protection. So in terms of my own garden, I absolutely love to see wildlife there. So just before we started speaking, um, I was down in the kitchen and there was a a battle royal going on around the bird feeder. A little flock of goldfinches were busy around it and there were some great tits eyeing it up from the apple tree at the side. And then this robin flew in and obviously they all all dispersed. So um, and basically, we, you know, it, it is a little bit messy. We don't have a lawn. There's a little pile of kind of logs and leaves in the corner and I have no idea what's living in there. There's a little compost box with worms in it at the end of the garden that we put all of our food waste into, for example. And then just lots of pots with herbs and and little flowers that are good for bees, but carefully picked so as not to be poisonous to the cats, because we also have a couple of cats. But they're very well-behaved cats and they don't go after birds, so that's a bonus. Gareth Redmond King. It can feel pretty bleak hearing about all this bad news, but there's much that us gardeners can do. From reducing our water usage to planting trees, every little action makes a difference. So let's hear how we can make our gardens more suited to the way the climate's changing. Here's RHS gardening advisor, Nikki Barker. I think if we make our gardens greener, if we can try and use less chemicals, then we can do great things to help alleviate the problems of climate change. So obviously plants are great at taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So that's a really good thing. So the more we're planting, even if we're just doing it in a small way in our own gardens, we are helping. We need to look at problems that are caused by flooding. So 
getting wetter and wetter winters if you can plant then those plants are going to be taking up particularly trees but other plants as well they'll be taking up water during the winter so that does help alleviate flooding and again even if it's only in a small way it is a step in the right direction so there's lots of things that you can do planting front gardens rather than maybe paving them over things like that they're really important steps to helping us adapt to how the climate changes soil health is really important and as the climate changes i think we need to be looking at how we maintain soil health when we get these periods of prolonged rain for example that might be leaching nutrients from the soil but also then periods of drought so adding organic matter to your soil whatever soil type you've got is going to help to keep your soil healthy it encourages beneficial organisms worms all sorts of things but crucially adding organic matter to your soil each year each winter it will help your soil to conserve moisture it improves the structure of your soil. So it helps it to conserve moisture when we've got periods of drought. But crucially, it improves the drainage of your soil when we've got periods of heavy rain. So it does two things. And it does that for all soil types to differing extents. Obviously, it has a a slightly different effect on clay soils to sandy soils, but it will always improve your soil and help your, your soil to cope with the changes, which will help your plants thrive. try and cultivate a little less I have a fairly medium to heavy clay so I now try and just put my organic matter on the top in the winter I might lightly fork it in but I don't dig it in like we used to just let all of those soil organisms do the work for you because it helps prevent compaction in the soil and it becoming overworked and losing its structure. So there's a lot to be said for doing it the easy way. There's a lot of benefits to your soil structure by not digging it in. So try and avoid that compaction and that over-cultivation, and particularly in the summer when it might be very dry. If you're cultivating your soil, there's water evaporating from it. So think about mulching in the spring rather than leaving bare earth that moisture can evaporate quite rapidly from there's lots of plants that are drought friendly and that helps because if you're planting to make sure that those plants don't need you to water them once they're established all plants need some water to help them get established but once they're established they won't need watering during periods of drought so think about mediterranean type planting so things like lavender rosemary Also, Agpantha, Secanacea, Perovskia, these silver-leaved plants, Artemisia, they're fab for drought tolerance. They're really, really happy with it. Lupinus arboreus is another great plant for drought. And there's lots of annual plants as well that are very drought tolerant. So things like zonal geraniums for summer bedding, gazanias, osteospermas, they're much more drought tolerant than things like lobelia and petunia, which we may be used to use a lot so you can get all of that seasonal color as well as all the structure shrubs and herbaceous perennials in your garden and because they'll tolerate the drought you won't need to use water and conserving water is really important now there are also plants that tolerate wet and dry soils so because we have quite wet winters in a lot of areas and if you've got a quite poorly draining soil 
and that might be a clay soil, however much you try and improve it. Think about planting things like Sambucus nigra eva, Budlia cornus alba cultivars, Hydrangea annabelle, Albarescens annabelle is beautiful, hardy fuchsias and lots of hardy herbaceous geraniums are great at tolerating those wet winters followed by dry springs and summers. If you get your planting right, you can still have great all year round interest without having to be constantly watering and using up that valuable resource. I think it's been shown to have so much benefit for people's health and well-being gardening. And if while you're doing it, you know that you're having a really positive impact on mitigating the effects of climate change and and maybe you're having some fun trying new things doing it. I grew cannellini beans and butter beans this year and had a really good harvest. Now, when I first moved to Sussex 30 years ago, there would be no way really that that would have been a productive harvest. So so also look at the benefits, look at the slightly more exotic things that we, we are now being able to grow. I've got ripe olives on my olive trees. I'm not sure that 20 ripe olives is going to make any particular impact on my olive oil stocks, but it is still really lovely to be able to grow those slightly more exotic things. And it's a really positive step if we do it right. Thanks, Nikki. Well, today's show has left me feeling a little bit more optimistic. Sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming when you hear about climate change. But I think this show has shown us gardeners are really important. We're in touch with nature, we're observant, we're watching climate change, but we can also make a really positive difference in what we plant and the way we plant it. If you'd like to find out more about anything we've discussed today, please visit RHS org.uk forward slash podcast until next time from me fiona davison it's goodbye i'm walking down the path in my garden and i have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming with a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. 
and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.